0: Well, thank you so much, Adrian, for, for joining me today. Very excited to talk about a lot of different aspects that you've been in without in your career and now what you started at Providence. And I think I just want to start a little bit with, with your journey. And you've kind of been in in a lot of different spaces in in finance, and but then also you've seen how finance can can really impact the world in a lot of different ways. And especially now, as you know, impact investing is coming much more to the forefront and top of top of mind, maybe in the industry. You've had really early look at, at what that looks like through through your career and through your journey. So talk a little bit about that before Providence.
1: Absolutely, Grant. Well, first things first. Thanks for having me here. I'm a big fan of the podcast, and it's an honor to be with you this morning. So my journey is is somewhat unique and I I never knew growing up that I would have found my way into the finance industry and to run a financial services company. Growing up, I always knew I liked business, but the the whole world of finance was very opaque and and really Mm a mystery to me. So the early chapter of my life and the early part of my career was really punctuated by being an immigrant, and my, my goal in life was how do I stay in the country, get some some semblance of financial security. So, I, I you know I wish I could say I, I was a visionary at a young age, knowing that we had to change our financial system to invest in biological systems. But through my varied experiences, which was really framed early on by being an immigrant, when I was younger. I was trying to figure out what do I do with the rest of my life in a way that would give me those two things. And I had a childhood friend growing up who was three years older than me. And when I was a senior in high school, he got an internship uh, at Goldman Sachs. And that Mm -hmm. was the first time I ever heard about the company Goldman Sachs. Being the, the nerd I was, I started looking into this company. And the more and more I dug into it, the more I realized how involved they were with every industry, every geography in the planet and yeah. how capital really drove a lot off the industries in the world and the way those industries were run. You know, being me and, and, and being a little bit bold, I, I picked up the phone and cold called Goldman Sachs and <laughs> asked their Philadelphia office if, if I could come in for the day and just learn more. And they were like, this is rare. This doesn't happen every day. Why are you calling us? And okay, maybe send us your resume and if it's interesting we'll get back to you and um, luckily I had a good resume at that time. I was president of Future Business Leaders of America on a regional level and just had a lot of, you know, business history, even though I was younger, and they were really generous. And I and I have to really thank that Philadelphia office. They gave me a call back three days later and said, you know what, come in and let's have you shadow people wow. for a week. And, and and so I came in and that was really the the beginning of this lifelong exploration of what is this financial system? that really runs our economy. And so through that, I got accepted into their undergraduate program. Then I got to do their sophomore rotational internship. And for someone who knew nothing about finance to then get an experience at, uh, you know, one of the leading financial services firm and opposed to just jumping into one specific seat, the beauty about their undergraduate program, the beauty of their sophomore rotational program is that it's really a generalist program. So Mm -hmm. I got to shadow in every revenue making division in Goldman, whether it was investment banking, sales and trading, asset management, research, and also got to look at all the non-revenue making divisions. So at a really young age, I got this very unique perspective into what is an investment bank? What are the different components and what functions do they serve in the economy? So really grateful for that experience. And then um, you know, I went to a small liberal arts college named Williams College that produces a lot of investment bankers. So <laughs> as I went to college, um, I started learning more and more about what the investment banking industry was. So that led me to work at Goldman, at J.C. Morgan. But I spent most of my time in Morgan Stanley. And at Morgan Stanley, I had the unique perspective of working in their wealth management division right after they acquired Smith Barney to create mm-hmm. the largest wealth manager in the country, with $2 trillion in assets. In that role, I helped build out a world-leading fintech platform for their 16,000-plus financial advisors. And I also got to harmonize their financial products. So I got to look at every asset class, every geography, every financial structure and said, do these make sense for clients going into the future? What doesn't and should be removed? And where is the puck going? And what type of financial products should we have? And that's where I started interacting with impact investing. Hmm. And, you know, we're at this moment in history where we're going to see the largest generational wealth transfer in history. And, you know, to put some numbers behind that, the millennial generation is projected to inherit $41 trillion from baby boomers. And it's no secret that, Newer generations want to invest their money differently, where they're not myopically focused on just financial returns, but they're looking for a more holistic scorecard to evaluate the success of their, their, their wealth. At that moment, I got my CFA, which is a portfolio management designation. And I was helping, I moved to Morgan Stanley investment management, where I was helping investors create asset allocations to achieve their goals. And in that role, I heard impact again, where people were asking Hmm. me for, you know, these investments are great, but tell me about the impact. And if you find high quality investments that also produce impact, please come to us. We're starving and we want to hear more about it. So those were kind of my foray into learning about the finance industry and then getting the impact bug. And then I think in my own life, food has always been the most powerful vector you know when i when i was a young kid and i had a a shitty day in middle school i'd come home and my my mom's cooking would would restore my spirit and then when i was working stanley and sales you know being young i i I was 25 uh 27 selling financial products to people sometimes two or three times older than me and like how is this going to (laughs) happen you know i'm smart i have my cfa but uh you know i'm still a little green but I would take people out to eat and we would break bread and it's amazing that when you find commonality and you find a way to respect and appreciate the person aside across from the table from you, business just tends to follow and people like to do business with people they trust and they have a connection with. So for, for, for me, food restored my spirit and it hmm. also gave me the community as an immigrant that you know I was so starved for that allowed me to um, be successful in my own career. So that that was my experience with food. But, you know, while I was working on Wall Street, I would also volunteer on the weekends and I would volunteer with marginalized communities throughout New York. And what I I quickly realized was the experience that I had with food, one that was restorative, one that built community, Mm -hmm. very rare. And most people actually have a negative experience with food. They don't have enough to eat. What they're eating is making them sick, or they're living in an area where they're exposed to really high levels of toxicity because of food production, and you know that th- that really stuck with me. And as I started to get financial security, as I got married and was really asking, what does the next chapter of my career look like? I started connecting the dots and said, look, here are generationally wealthy families, long time horizon money, asking you to invest in impact. Here I have firsthand experience that our food system needs to be reshaped. And by doing so, we can give more people a positive experience with food. Why don't I go foray out and really try to connect these two pockets together? How do I get these long-time Horizon investors to invest in reinventing our food system? So I took that thesis and I went to business school at Berkeley Haas to really test it to see was there, there, there. And Berkeley was the perfect crucible for that exploration. And, <laughs> you know, Berkeley ha- has so many deep roots in the organic movement. Yeah. And the one thing that I appreciate and I was drawn to at Berkeley is one of the four key principles of Berkeley Haas, which is question the status quo. And there are different points in my experience in the financial services industry where being inquisitive, I would ask a lot of questions. And <laughs> you know some of the questions were responded to, Adrian, it is what it is. <laughs> and he, that all is wrong with me. And to me, I just really appreciate an institution like Berkeley, which appreciates that, yes, in some contexts, it is what it is, but don't let that stop you from questioning the status quo. And, you know, being at this cutting edge where I really wanted to trailblaze and say, how do we change the way we invest in the food system? Because through my experience, I realized how capital really defines how businesses manifest themselves. Mm. How could I trailblaze on that and change the way the capital was structured to then changed the way businesses were manifested. So while I was at Berkeley, I had the unique experience on being on their socially responsible investment fund. So getting the chance to be a portfolio manager of mm. a pool of money and really thinking about what sustainability meant, not just in theory, but in practice. I was also on the board of the, Respons- the Center for Responsible Business. And Robert Strand, who's the executive director of that, just brought every thought leader in the space to Berkeley uh, to talk about what the future of finance was. So through that, I got to meet Bob Eccles, who created SASB, the Sustainable Accounting Standards Board, which Mm -hmm. is trying to add and change financial reporting to be more holistic. I also got to participate in the CRB's Patagonia Case Competition, which that year was how do you scale and invest in regenerative agriculture? And that experience ultimately led me to spend time at Patagonia working for them in their venture capital fund, Shed Ventures. And in that role, I got to write their standard for regenerative organic agriculture with a coalition of industry partners like Dr. Bronner's, the soap company, the Rodale Institute, one of the leading regenerative agriculture farms in the country, to really say the organic standard is great, but there's a lot missing there. And how do we create a regenerative organic agriculture standard, which really delineates clearly what regenerative means and yeah. to us it really meant how do you improve soil health, how do you think about fairness in labor, and then how do you also think about animal welfare, and then how do we create a high bar standard that allows us to say, this is what we define as regenerative and anything less than this might have shades of greenwashing behind it. So I would say that experience was fundamental in my own journey because I got to read every agricultural standard out there and to really pick and choose what we wanted to preserve and what could have been done better. And then to do that in a corporate culture like Patagonia, which, you know, slightly different from both investment investment (laughs) banks. Um, It really showed me how I could do meaningful work that that could impact an industry, but at the same time, have fun doing it. And, you know, I I can't tell you how great it was to work with everyone at Patagonia and the coalition of partners they brought to the table. So, um, you know, that really was the start of my journey. And then graduating from business school, I met my business partner at Berkeley And You know, one thing i say is smart people are easy to find, but smart, smart people with good hearts. That's a lot harder to find. So <laughs> while I was at Berkeley, I, I had the fortune of meeting my business partner, FJ, Francois, Jerome Fillo, and FJ and I were the two people running around business school saying, we need to think about regenerative ag. We need to think about how we finance it. And our friends got kind of bored talking to us and talking about <laughs> regenerative ag all the time. And they're like, Adrian, I love you, but there's this guy, Sj. I think he, he, he's more your speed. Don't he
0: will listen. He will so. listen. <laughs>
1: So uh, FJ listened, and we we got to work on projects together. And you, you know, not only did I realize that he was wickedly smart, he has a master's of financial engineering. He was a macro and credit investor at a series of hedge funds, but he also had a great heart. And to me, he wasn't in this to feel better about himself, but still keep the status quo. He was really trying to do this in a way that could impact the world, and that, that was the ethos I was bringing into it. So. We became fast friends and then um, as we looked at places to potentially join after business school, we just realized what was needed wasn't there. And instead of trying to join a company Mm -hmm. and then try to build out a different part of that company, we just decided to take the plunge and to to join a company, to start a company together. So FJ and I founded Providence Capital Group to really focus on how do we get capital to flow into natural resources and the reason why we focus on natural resources is that the time horizon of natural systems doesn't fit into a venture capital fund you know how, yeah. how are you going to put a tree into a venture capital fund and <laughs> you know it's not to say that venture capital doesn't have a space within the asset allocation and i think for software service businesses for technology businesses yep. that model works really well but what we were seeing is that a lot of people were creating businesses just to fit the vc model that wanted to be regenerative but were the the financial structure was at odds with the ability to be regenerative and you know me and fj being students of the financial markets we saw that right now the financial structure of vogue was venture capital and that's the returns that people were you know using as a barometer before that it was private equity before that was hedge funds and you know every 10 years there's a financial structure that gets a lot of steam behind it and that Frame, you know that becomes a framing point. So what our goal was to say, how could we create a financial services firm that allows billions, if not trillions of dollars to flow into the space, but has the right structure to align with biological systems? So, And we can get into the PCG origin story. We can dive into a bit more to, to what we do. But I wanted to give you a taste about where I started, where I've been, and uh, where I'm currently at.
0: I want to touch on defining, you know, you talked about like trying to define regenerative agriculture, right? Trying to define sort of a new way of doing things. Um, Many people might look at things differently, right? So how, how did you end up defining it, right? And what what does it mean to you? And when you explain it to people, right, because just how we both kind of had the same experience, I think, growing up, like not really knowing what finance is, or like what an investment banker is, like the whole world of finance is actually very neglected to most of the population, like not a lot of people know how it works. And then you have to learn over life how to do that, because schools just don't, they don't teach it for some reason. It's weird. Anyway, but I think, you know, regenerative now is sort of, in this same kind of field where it's a term that I think maybe some people know, but maybe not quite understand quite what it can, what it can be and what it can do for our food ecosystem and in our economy. So how do you explain regenerative agriculture to those coming into wanting to be a part of it?
1: Great question, Grant. And before I go into defining what regenerative means to me and how our firm defines it you brought up a really good point there which is a lot of people don't learn about finance when they're younger it's crazy. and yeah. you know that that random cold call changed my life unbelievable but if yeah. you are out there and you are interested i, I have to just speak wonders off uh, sponsors for educational opportunity seo as well as mlt management leadership for Tomorrow. These are programs that uh, make inroads with underrepresented communities and make sure they get a chance to explore the financial services industry. So I just want to put that out there for anyone who's listening to this, who's curious, but doesn't know how to get inroads in, definitely check out SEO and, and MLT. So in terms of how I define regenerative, let's start with regenerative first, and then how that manifests in agriculture. I think the biggest thing for me is mindset. What's the mindset you're bringing to this definition of regenerative? And I had an amazing teacher at Berkeley Haas named Will Rosenzweig. And part of Food Innovation Studio was, what is the mindset you're bringing to food? And right Mm -hmm. now, the world operates in this mechanical and linear mindset where you start with inputs, you do something as inputs, you then sell a good, it creates waste, and then you either put it in a landfill, you incinerate it. And then you start back at square one. And that's the model we're bringing to most of our our economy. And what that produces is a lot of waste that we don't know what to do with. So instead of having this linear mechanical model, the mindset of regenerative is really circular in nature. And it really takes the playbook off nature and applies it to an economy. So like nature, there is no waste. All nutrients Hmm. get created into something, whether it's a tree, whether it's an animal. And- At some point, it gets recycled back into the ground and then gets put into something else. So to me, instead of having this extract and deplete with high levels of waste, we need to transition to an economy that's circular in nature, where we are thinking about what are our inputs, what are we going to create from them, but at end of life, how do we find a way to recycle them back into our planet and then have that start that cycle over again and to repeat that loop. And and, and that's really the mindset that we're bringing to regenerative regenerative agriculture, which is how is it circular in nature? How are we eliminating this extract and deplete and waste mentality? And instead, how do we move to a, a restore and sustain paradigm? So theory behind regenerative is that we've done so much harm to the planet up to this point that we can't just sustain the level we're at. We actually need to restore and rehabilitate our ecosystem, get it to a proper equilibrium, and then only then can we sustain it. So theory behind regenerative is that we've degraded our natural reserves and banks, and we need to restore them, rehabilitate them before we're ready to sustain them. So Hmm. to me, I think those two concepts of mindset are really important, which is, how does the economy move to being fully circular And how do we understand that we have pushed the planet past the point that we need to restore it and rehabilitate it before we can sustain it? And that's why regenerative is kind of the new frontier and why just being sustainable isn't going to cut it when, you know, we're at uh, the level of climate change that we're seeing right now. So that's a bit about the mindset that we bring to regenerative. And then... When you think about that for food fiber and forestry, which are our three focus areas you, you're really thinking about land bases
0: mm-hmm. and
1: there are certain techniques that mimic natural systems that we're not currently doing when we produce natural food fiber and and, and forestry so one is minimizing soil disturbance soil is a living breathing thing mm-hmm. there's really so much complexity and and you know a lot of people, if they can't see it, they it, it's not relevant, or they don't believe it. But I can't tell you how much life soil has good, healthy soil. It's just teeming with life. Um, yeah. You know, in a teaspoon of soil, there's over you know a billion organisms in it, and the the complexity of those organisms and the relationship it, it's mind-boggling. So you know, when people just look at soil and they think it's dirt, it, it's extremely different and soil is living, breathing thing, when you disturb soil, it kills the ability for those organisms to live because it just disrupts kind of the structure that that they're living in. So, you know, to us, when we think about regenerative, our goal is to minimize soil disturbance. We also want to maximize crop diversity. A lot of our food is created in these big monocultures where we're just growing one crop for thousands upon thousands upon thousands of acres. when you do that and you don't have biological diversity you create a perfect environment for pests to come in and to eat your crop and you know to solve for that we've created constant chemicals that have huge negative externalities uh, whether it's water runoff creating dead zones in the ocean killing pollinators so instead of using pesticides and chemicals to preserve this monocrop system if you switch to a polyculture where you have a good crop rotation and you have different pollinator habitats, you can use natural predators that can Hmm. actively protect your crop because you're doing it in the right crop rotation and you have the right beneficial insect species to protect the crops that you're growing. So crop diversity is a huge part of regenerative ag. And then keeping soil covered, you know, soil respirates, it breathes, there's a, a very complex relationship there, but if it's not covered, it's susceptible to erosion to running off. And, you know, one goal of regenerative ag is how do you prevent erosion and how do you make sure soil stays on the ground? And the best way to do it is to keep living roots in it all year round. And that's not a practice that's currently done on most large scale agriculture. And then the last thing I would say for regenerative agriculture is where are you getting your fertility from? Are you using synthetic chemicals that you're piling on or most regenerative agriculture, The goal is to get and integrate animals into it. And I think this is such an important Mm. point where Mm -hmm. cows get such a bad rep right now and animals get such a bad rep where people are saying, we don't need them. Let's just totally cut out right. animals from our right. food system. It'll be better for the planet.
0: It's part of the ecosystem, though. We just need to use it better.
1: Absolutely, Grant. And I'm so glad you know that because, you know, Will Harris, I call him the fondly the Albus Dumbledore of the regenerative movement. And he's kind of the, the lead farmer at White Oak Pastures. And he's doing incredible things in Georgia with regenerative farming. And he has this phrase, it's not the cow, it's the how." And yeah, if you put yeah. cows in confined animal feeding operations, it's going to create manure lagoons. It's going to um, cause high susceptibility of diseases. We're going to have to use antibiotics. But if you put cows in pastures in their natural habitat, yep. they're going to be fine. And th- and that ecosystem co-evolved with ruminants. So if you think about the Midwest and and how bison and buffalo co-evolved and coexisted with that ecosystem, you realize that cows are a keystone part of that. And if you remove cows from there, you're going to end up with desertification. So one of our clients, the Savory Institute and their land and market program, you know, they've really shown that rotational managed grazing where you have cows that you move in a pattern across the landscape that mimics their natural Mm -hmm. uh, tendencies prior to to the domestication of animals, you know, that sequesters carbon, that rejuvenates ecosystems and has healthy outcomes that produce food. So, you know, animal integration is really important and animals add a huge level of fertility to the soil and allows you to do it in a way that you don't have to extract it from a mine and then ship it thousands of miles mm-hmm. to your farm to, to implement. So I, I know I've gone really deep into what regenerative bags means.
0: Yeah, that. no, I think it's important though. I think it's important when you, you know, you are talking about these terms and, you know, these big ideas and things that can shift the entire trajectory of, of our economy and, and really our, our race, right? Our species. I mean, I think it's important to understand it and go into the weeds of why these things matter. The one thing I, I want to say is that how, you know, when we talk about these, these issues and, and these ideas, how do we implement them? Right. How do we actually solve these things when we kind of know what we need to do? But then how do we use the financial sector to actually implement and execute these ideas? So as you're talking to investors or clients and allocating capital to do this the right way, are you seeing that to being done the right way? Is it investing in, you know, startups? Is it looking at public companies and trying to figure out a way to have them shift the way that they do things? It's probably a combination of both, but what are you seeing right now that is making that can make the most impact, let's say, over the next decade or so? Absolutely.
1: So as a firm, we we have two core functions. I would say our core function as an investment bank is we raise capital for early stage regenerative agriculture companies or investment funds. So that is probably where we spend the majority of our time. And then we also have another part of our business where we help, Asset holders, whether it's family offices, foundations, donor advised funds, different pockets of capital help build regenerative portfolios. So Mm -hmm. we're really working on creating impactful, investable, regenerative opportunities through our investment bank. And through our investment advisory practice, we're helping asset holders really understand how do they implement this? and take it from theory to their portfolio. So those are the two coins of our business to get the change that we need to see in the world and, and you know for for our listeners out there, there is this amazing report called the Soil Wealth Report and it was it was published in 2019 by the Croton Institute by David Lee Sachs and, and Josh Humphreys. And w- what they said is that we're going to need about 700 billion in capital to flow into the regenerative space over the next 30 years. And there's potential for this to create $10 trillion in net financial return while also mitigating and potentially sequestering 170 gigatons hmm. of CO2. So in terms of just it, like thinking about how much money needs to go into this space it's in the hundreds of billions, if not trillions, I think they're being a little bit shy and it's good to be conservative when you're putting <laughs> yeah, a study yeah, out there. Yeah, yeah. And, but to think about how much money needs to go into the, this space and how that can produce not just store value, but produce, produce a return, all while sequestering carbon and having other ecosystem services, I think that is something that our firm is fully focused on creating the financial infrastructure for. And our goal is how do we take our investor network? We have a very curated investor network of the investors out there, family offices, foundations who are leading the charge on deploying capital in a regenerative mindset. And then how do we create and support entrepreneurs that are looking for capital to hone their businesses, make sure they're ready for growth, and then connect them to people in our investor network who are willing to change the script on how to invest outside the VC mold and to really invest into the timeline of, of biological systems. That, that's really what, what what our firm is focused on.
0: When you look at the, we'll call them sort of like the, you know, the factory farm sort of industry, right? And maybe the massive food companies, right? Maybe the big three or five really, really control a lot of the ecosystem and, and the way the food is, is delivered. They, you know, the supply chain, how the infrastructure is built from that point of view. Do you feel like that you're like, <laughs> not you personally right but but the regenerative industry is that like is that like kind of war with them or it, do you see them as being a partner in this potentially being a partner in trying to shape sort of the the next economy to be regenerative right rather than just like quarterly right based on sort of earnings and based on you know the sort of wall Street investment model is quarterly rather than looking at like you said sort of the natural capital years of, of of how that will work how do you see them as as a partner or an adversary
1: absolutely i i i think the younger me uh will probably have a more combative approach yeah um, but you know to me i think talking about mindsets it's really important to not have a, a scarcity mindset but an abundance mindset and uh, if you have an abund- abundant mindset and you are working in a regenerative system that's really the ethos that you want so you know when i look at large multinationals that are, they realize they need to change. You know, I think the world needs both an evolution and a revolution at the same mm. time. And w- we need these large multinationals to start moving these oil tankers in the right direction and to really um, move the rudders into a direction that's regenerative. And then we also need, to, we also know that we need catalysts to push them to do that work faster. And hmm. so when we wrote that standard at Patagonia, the Regenerative Organic Certified Standard, it's a high bar standard. And when we wrote it at Patagonia and we looked through our own supply chain, uh, looked through their supply chain, it was going to be hard to hit just because we couldn't do it right out of the gate. It was still important for us to draw a line in the sand to say, this is where the world needs to go to. And even though it, it, it takes it might take us years, if not decades, to get our entire supply chain there. We need to do what's right and not just what serves our company the best. So, you know, I, I think when we wrote that standard, it really sent ripples down the industry where greenwashing, incrementalism wasn't going to cut it anymore. And it really put into perspective the spectrum of where we were and where we needed to go, the huge chasm in between. And to say that, for mentalism is going from here on the spectrum to really close to where you started. But if you really want to be regenerative, this is where you need to get to. So to me, mm-hmm. I think, it's important to realize they're they're good people working at all these multinational companies who are trying to do good in the system they're in. And unless we change the system, it's going to be hard to have them move as fast as as we want. So to me, I think it's really important that all these multinational companies, they're beholden to their stakeholders and their shareholders. And if the shareholders change what they are asking for, it gives these multinationals the ability to actually move in that direction or in a regenerative direction faster. So, you know, to me, I, 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 I think it's really important that we are all asset holders at some level. Yep. And the amount of capital that's held by pension funds uh, that represent things like teachers, firefighters, mm-hmm. if we can get those pools of capital to say, look, it's important to us for you to preserve our our capital, to grow it, but to do it in a way that doesn't cause externalities where uh, the world's going to have a lot of issues where our capital isn't going to be worth as much because of geopolit- geopolitical warfare due, uh, due to climate change. So, you know, to me, I think need to play their part and they need to make commitments to moving in a regenerative way. But we also need to change the system they're in. And to me, that really starts with who are the, their shareholders and how can we get shareholder activism into a new era? Where we're really giving them the leeway to start thinking more holistically and not just in quarterly earnings and and short time horizons
0: yeah I, I had a good conversation a while back, and the idea of sort of divesting was 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 talked about and how that you know they had they had experienced where divesting in companies had actually it had more impact than do sort of like threats not threats but just like protesting sort of things or like trying to do campaigns around certain things it was like as simple as just like you know what we're going to take our money elsewhere like that speaks the loudest right is just actually divesting in a company and then you know going to someone like you or right or, or somebody else and say hey i just divested i want to move this capital from this company to something that is better right and that is more recommended for what i want to do is that something that you see at all
1: I, I, absolutely. I, I think that the divest movement throughout uh, American history, whether it was related to tobacco, whether it was related to apartheid in South Africa, ha- had huge positive impacts in this space. So I, I think in terms of the methods that activists and activists, regenerative investors have, I think divestment. Is a, a, a great method. I also think there's other ways to also have activist investing, and w- another way is through proxy voting. Mm-hmm. When I was at Berkeley and work at, and a member of their at Sustainable Investment Fund, we started writing proxy statements and having people vote on things that were material and putting that up to vote for these companies, you know, th- throughout the year. So I think that's a way you can engage with these companies and tell them what you want and I think to take that a step further I think what we should see more of are large shareholders like pension funds insurance companies and especially insurance companies who have a lot of exposure to climate change and you know we'll probably be left holding the bill to say we need to see this change we are invested in this sector and we are going to over the next five years, move our money to those actors who create the most change in the next five years across these metrics. And I think that's a really good way to, instead of just divesting, how do you influence large actors Mm -hmm. that even if you divest are still gonna be in business? And so instead of divesting and taking your ball home and not playing the game, how can you actually influence the game? And to me, by having large shareholders come to the table saying, This is what we want and need you to do. And if you don't do it, we're going to move the capital to your competitors in the same industry who are doing it. And I think that would be the (laughs) best way to get things to move as quickly as we need them to move based on what we're seeing on, on the climate change front.
0: I think that actually happened with Exxon. Last year, I think that they had some type of proxy where large shareholders came in and took over a board seat or something like that. I, I believe it was it was something with where Exxon, where there was it was a big issue around climate, and they think they weren't doing enough, and some shareholders got together and, and kind of made made the choice for them a little bit. So that was really really interesting. I'll end on the last question a little bit about the future and maybe what you're optimistic about and what you see on a daily basis. You you have great insight on on what's actually gonna you know, move the needle and what is moving the needle and, and what we can see as as consumers even down the line. Like, what can we expect, right? How can we expect to for it to be easy on us to, right, go to the store and make sure that what we're buying is something that we can sort of be proud of and not be difficult for us as consumers to, to have to sort of live a better life, right? A lot of the times we have to go out and seek and tra- these decisions, we have to take time and kind of research and then, oh, let's shop here instead of here. It's How do we make that easier too is I think a big issue. But like, what do you see within maybe the next five to 10 years that we can see happen that'll be positive in, in the space of, of sort of food, but just regenerative economy in general?
1: So I think when when I look at at the space, I think what is really important from my vantage point is you, you have to invest in the system. You can't just invest in a part of the, the supply ecosystem. So, you yeah. know, right now when people talk regenerative, it's all about ag tech. It's all about consumer packaged good companies. And to me, it you know, show me the money and yeah. that's where the money is being made. And <laughs> that's why uh, people are, are investing in those spaces. And that's why they're getting a lot of the love. So to me, I, I think one thing that frustrates me, but one thing that I love educating people on is that you can have a regenerative economy if you don't invest in the system and you only yeah. cherry pick the parts of the great supply point. Yeah. ecosystem that, that have high margins. So, you know, I encourage people to not just looking at ag tech, not just look at consumer packaged good companies, but who's doing the growing, <laughs> How do you you invest in regenerative production? And then how do you invest in regenerative processing? And, you know, to me, COVID was just a a shocking moment where we had millions of animals that needed to be harvested. You had store shelves that were empty and processing was just gunked up and was hyper fragile and just broke down. So, you know, this is not just uh, about making money. It's about how do we feed our people? And to me, I think that's something that's really important, which is, should our food system really be left to people who are speculating, trying to make money, or should it first feed people and then uh, really preference people who want to invest and create long-term return and to invest in companies, opposed to people who are speculating, trying to make quick money. So to me, I think there's going to be more and more conversations in the coming years about, should food be a speculative market, or should this be an industry Given how important it is to every single person in this country on this planet that should be protected from, you know, some level of of unabashed speculation. You know, also there is, you know, our food system and the history of this country, there's a lot of socioeconomic injustices that have occurred. And as we think about what regenerative means, there is the soil health part, there is the animal welfare part, but There's also the fairness in access. There's also the the fairness in getting additional capital. So to me, I think we're also on the cusp of really bringing the, the, the justice conversation into investing in this space. And if your workers don't have a living wage, is that truly a regenerative system? So to me, I, I think it's important for people to look at the entire ply ecosystem and not just cherry pick the high margin areas. I think people should also realize what's the mindset we're bringing into allocating money into this space. And is it a speculative mindset? Is it a long-term investor mindset and what role does justice and equity play in this when, you know, the USDA admitted that they prevented a lot of capital going to black and diverse farmers and that happened and they've admitted to it and they're they're trying to change that and they're trying to think about ways to absolve those past wrongdoings but you know it's not a fair playing field out there so how do we take that into account but you know i take great inspiration from the companies that we work with and They they inspire me each and every day, and the leaders of those companies are doing heroic work. So you know, just to name a couple, on on the production side, we're working with a fund called Clear Frontier, and they are helping conventional row crop move to regenerative row crops and polycultures, and they're doing it at scale, which it you know has is hasn't been done as much in the regenerative movement. So to me, I, I I see Clear Frontier as meeting the world where it is and changing mm-hmm. this conventional row process crop system into a regenerative version of it. And then in terms of processing, we're working with Cream Co Meats out here in the Bay Area. What they do is that they work with the best regenerative ranchers and farmers, and they give them ability to process their goods and sell them to a variety of outlets. And to do that in a way where they're not squeezing farmers, but are really paying them what they need to do the good work on the ground. And then on, you know, the consumer package goods front and retail and interacting with consumers, you know, as a father of, of two under two. Which is complete madness. <laughs> but I thought, <laughs> you know, the baby food industry is yeah. ripe for reinvention. And the, the U.S. House of Representatives came out with this, a scathing report earlier this year saying that the leading baby food manufacturers, both organic and non organic, are knowingly selling products with extremely high levels of toxic metals in them. And, you know, as a father, that's just scary to know that they're knowingly doing this. And, Mm -hmm. you know, this went all the way to the U.S. House of Representatives. So we're working with a company named White Leaf Provisions, which is a regenerative baby food company, but Mm. they've been on the forefront of testing their products for glyphosate residue for heavy metals. And to me, it's really important that we're feeding people healthy things and we're not just doing it from a marketing perspective, but we're actually testing and making sure that our claims are verified. And that um, the consumer is actually getting what they're looking for, and not just getting the marketing, but but not the actual product. So, you know, to me, I just wanted to pepper in some of the people that we're working with. Hell yeah! I man. think That's aside great. from yeah. those, those that I touched on, we're working with the Savory Institute and their land to market program. And what they do is that they connect regenerative supply to regenerative to regenerative demand. And part of that is whole animal utilization. So, how can yeah. they work with? different types of companies, whether it's a pet food company, a meat company, uh, a jerky company to say, we're going to take this whole animal and you're going to make a leather boot out of the skin. You're going to make jerky out of the trim. You're going to sell the choice cut. And then how do we connect you to ranchers who are doing good work and who don't have the time to go to all these different companies and strike these different deals who just want to sell a whole animal? And then how do you connect those? So the the savory land and market program is really one of the biggest catalysts that are helping these large multinationals figure out how do I completely reinvent my supply chain after I made all these really bold promises of doing it by 2030. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Amazing. I I love I I love talking about talking about companies and and what they're doing. I wanted to touch on one more thing if you could before we, we get off here. And we talked a lot about land, a lot about soil, about a lot about regenerative on the land, physically. What about oceans and water? Is there anybody, or do you look at that as a similar sort of mass thing that we have to sort of change and mature on? Is the infrastructure or supply chain of how we how we do sort of you know food out of our oceans, and how we make that much more regenerative, rather than the systems that are set up now, is, it seems to be much like the systems we have set up on land, uh, where it's just constantly sort of taking, taking, taking and never replenishing. Do you think do you go deep into the oceans at all? And maybe regenerative ocean companies or, or statistics or or just do you see capital going into that area as well?
1: Absolutely. I think the, the oceans are the next frontier. And, you know, if you think about the ability of soil to sequester carbon, it's huge. But the biggest pool of carbon sequestration is really in the oceans. And mm. um, a lot of people don't in the way that they don't realize how much life there is in the teaspoon of soil, a lot of people don't understand how complex our oceans are. So, in terms of the amount of carbon sequestered by kelp forests that are under pressure due to warming water levels, is is really important. So, to me, our firm at this moment doesn't have a deep specialty in the oceans, and I think it's important for us at this early stage to be focused and. Um, just touching all all our land bases, it's a a lot. It's a lot, yeah. (laughs) But to me, I I do think that it is important that people start looking at our oceans and realizing that they're part of the equation and a much larger equation that anyone ever realized. We can't solve climate change if we don't take care of the oceans in the right way. So to me, there, there are a lot of people who are starting to get into the space and to think about it more intentionally. So, you know, Creo Syndicate is a organization that helps family offices invest in different impact industries. And, you know, one of my classmates at Berkeley, Maggie Freed runs their oceans practice. And to really think about how do you invest in the ocean space? And then, you know, when you look at S2G Ventures, which was one of the the, the leading investors in reinventing our food system, they've recently started an ocean group which is really focused hmm. on how do you deploy money in in, in aquatic industry so th- you know though it is lesser known than i would say regenerative ag i do think regenerative oceans is going to be a much bigger theme in the coming years and i think we're seeing, seeing a lot of leading indicators from experienced people in the space who are realizing that you know they need to build teams to support capital to be, to be deployed in those areas and i do think our firm in the next two, three years, we'll dive deeper into that space, but but at the moment, our focus is really on land bases opposed to
0: aquatic bases. Well, thank you so much, Adrian. This was a fascinating conversation. I appreciate you taking the time with me and us, and uh, best of luck the, the rest of this year and for the hopefully the next decades to come, I man.
1: Grant, thanks so much for for sharing this, this platform you have with us, and I really appreciate the work you're doing and grateful that you're giving voices to different people in the impact space.